Hi, Unorthodox. This is Sarah Link Ferguson, and I wanted to share my conversion story, and I'm going to try to keep it as brief as possible. <laughs> um, but basically, it all started with my mom, who got interested in Judaism sometime in the 90s. Um, and she studied it and started trying out different synagogues and made Jewish friends and eventually converted in 2005 when I was about 16. And at the time, I had no real interest in Judaism, although I really liked the ritual and going to seders and, you know, all of the cultural stuff around it. So I actually started getting really interested in Judaism in college. I was taking a lot of human rights classes and reading a lot of human rights literature by Primo Levy and Elie Wiesel, and it just piqued my interest. That was like 2010. I didn't actually start the conversion process until 2015, so I really thought about it and researched it hard for like five years um, and found like the perfect congregation for me and reached out to the rabbi and then learned about the conversion class, and that is when I found Unorthodox, funnily enough. So I listened to Unorthodox throughout my conversion process, and um, I was even listening to an episode on the way to the mikvah to my baked in. And I have to say that I credit Unorthodox with helping my cultural Jewish knowledge so much. There's so much that I wouldn't have known that just comes naturally to people who are born Jewish that I know now. <laughs> and all of it has to do with unorthodox. So now I'm super involved in a small congregation in Kansas City and I actually work for a Jewish agency doing mental health work and whenever I learn that someone's converting, I tell them to download unorthodox. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and this is Unorthodox. This week, we will be talking about conversion to Judaism. And we began by asking some converts, some Jews by choice, for their stories. It was 33 years in the making before I could muster up the courage to reach out to a rabbi and say, hey, can I do this? She I was on the bima with Oliver in front of her, and she said, now, Oliver, I'm going to tell you the secret of the universe, but first I'm going to turn off my mic. And after that... It sort of, it was like planting a seed. I was like, oh God, I gotta do whatever I can, just what I can to find out what she's saying. I remember with great clarity the moment when I realized that in addition to learning about all the wonderful Jewish holidays and how to cook the delicious seasonal foods, I was also taking on the weight of the Holocaust and the suffering of the Jewish people. And that too was mine to bear. One of the things that surprised me most was how warm, inviting, and eager to welcome me as family people have been. This is the first time in my life, at least outside of therapy, where I have felt seen and accepted for who I am. I actually have started to interrupt other people, so, you know, now I'm definitely Jewish. The only thing interesting about my conversion story is that I actually converted with my identical twin sister. Um, we came to Judaism separately in well, we were both kind of in college, and when we came back home, we both went through a conversion program at our local synagogue, and now we've been Jews for about five years. It could be the communities that I've been in, but um, the 
kind of accounting of who's Jewish enough is, I find, baffling. After services, the mother came up to me, shook my hand, squeezed my shoulder, looked me in the eye and said, you chavos. And that's just one of the many things that the Jewish community gave to me. Finished conversion a couple months ago. People keep asking me what happened and why. And I just learned a little while ago from my mother that her best friend, who was always around when I was a kid, was Jewish. And I grew up eating rugula and kugel and didn't even know it. I pulled up my diary recently and I found an entry after the second Kabbalah Shabbat I ever went to. Little did I know then how many special Arab Shabbats are going to be in my future. And here I am learning to read trope in July. So my father is a very secular Jew from Israel who fell in love with my mother, a Christian from Denmark. And uh, I grew up in Denmark, a country with a Jewish population of 0.01%. I felt Jewish and I always had. It was part of my identity. I felt like a part of a lineage, a part of something bigger than myself. And so when people call me a convert, I just don't really feel that way because I feel like a part of my father's ancestry. I strongly feel a part of the Jewish history and narrative. And so to convert for me was in itself such a formality. A funny thing happened when we studied abroad. I had a terrible semester in Morocco and long story short, ended up finding and loving Judaism. And she found and fell in love with an Orthodox Jew. Needless to say, we both came back to our senior year of college deciding to convert. The joy of bringing someone through conversion and when they come out of the mikvah and they're surrounded by friends and family and they enter the Jewish people as just as if being reborn is one of the greatest thrills I had as a Rav. Hello Jews, future Jews, and potential Jews. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and as ever, I am joined by Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Jew from birth, Stephanie Butnick. Yes, that is my middle name. And Jew and senior and, writer at and Tablet. And Jew by choice, every day. <laughs> and Tablet senior writer, Liel Leibowitz. Shalom, shalom. Shalom, shalom. This week, the long-discussed, long-anticipated conversion episode in honor of the holiday of Shavuot, or Shavuos, as the, the Yiddish speakers and the grandparents say. Yeah. Uh, which Best is coming up, ever. coming up this Sunday, which is historically a holiday that is special or sacred to converts. So I actually wasn't sure why. And on the way up in the elevator, I asked Liel, Liel, wh why is this the convert's holiday? And so let me fondle my beard. <laughs> Maybe don't do that. There's really an element of conversion because in a sense, we all converted to Judaism. Before we had the Torah, we were not really Jews. And then we received this miraculous thing and all became Jews. And so Ruth, according to tradition, is a really, really interesting figure because she symbolizes the, the really fascinating notion that those who accept Torah, this is kind of like a rabbinic teaching, those who accept Torah in poverty will enjoy it in, in wealth, meaning she accepted the Torah and Judaism out of you know the purity of her heart and her soul, not for any sort of earthly reward, and then became the matriarch of kind of a, the messianic uh, monarchic dynasty of King David. Like she didn't become a Jew because she thought she'd get into her father-in-law's business. That's right. It wasn't to make partner. Or, or, to, or, or to be able to tell Jewish jokes. <laughs> right. She, no, did, she just did all that anyway. Right so we're all converts, which is really fascinating. We're all Ruth. We're all Ruth. Ruth is all of us. Yeah. This week for this special conversion episode, we'll be traveling to 
Savannah, Georgia, to hear the story of a 13-year-old girl who has taken the plunge, literally, to convert to Judaism. Then over to Utah for the story of a faithful Mormon who decided to leave the fold and become an Orthodox Jew. In the studio, we'll be joined by Yolanda Wu, a Chinese-American who's been living a Jewish life for three decades and finally decided to become an official Jew. And over to Israel, where we'll talk with Rabbi Seth Farber, who works with conversion in a country where who's Jewish and who's not, and who decides, can determine whether you can even move there. Finally, we'll hear from an engaged couple. She grew up in an Orthodox family. He grew up in the Australian outback with no Jews in sight, just lots of kangaroos. Just a sitcom waiting <laughs> to happen. <laughs> and they Chris will, Hemsworth. And they will talk. And Miley Cyrus. And Miley Cyrus. <laughs> wrong Hemsworth. Wrong Hemsworth. <laughs> and they will talk about what it means that he is converting as he prepares to marry her. He prepares to become a Jew as he prepares to become. I'm like a big Jew. Like this is some real, the family has some yichas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not. He's, he's not, related to our producer. It ain't going to Jewish light. No L-I-T-E light. So guys, we're talking about converts today. I want to get very real for a second here. I want to ask something. This is this is this is touchy stuff, okay? When you meet someone who's Jewish and and you know that she or he is a convert, do you register that? Do you think of this person as like a different category of Jew or less Jewish? Not for one second. Not, not for in, literally not, in, not for not one in second. Any imaginable conceivable way. Not at all. I always just think it's so funny. I'm like, so you wanted this, like you opted in. Whereas like I have all this like Michigas and you know Suris, all this stuff, but it's like, oh, you actually wanted to be here. And so I do have sort of a profound respect, but also I'm a little bit embarrassed because I'm like, you probably know more about Judaism than I do. And so every time I'm like, oh, I'm going to eat bacon, like it actually makes me, it checks my behavior a little bit because I'm like, oh, so I try to be delicate around it. So you feel, you feel converts are Jew shaming you. They're convert shaming me. See, I, if I'm being totally frank and yeah. I, and we owe our audience nothing less, right? There actually are two kinds of converts in my, if I'm, if I'm being frank with myself. The ones and, you don't talk to. Right? <laughs> there are some who I literally, like maybe I register it for five minutes and then I completely forget and I think about it again, never. Or every couple of years, somebody will, I'll think about it if a friend says, oh, I'm interested in converting and I'll think, who could I put them in touch with? And like, then it'll pop back up. But basically it completely recedes from my consciousness. They just are Jews. They are fellow Jews. And then there are some converts who I just never buy it. And and often it's people who converted under some sort of duress, like there was pressure from somebody's family because of a marriage or because of something else. Right. Or it was something I know I know one person who it was a kind of youthful fascination and and they underwent a conversion. And but it like passed. and then it really passed. And and there is that category of people where it's like they don't seem to buy it for themselves and therefore I don't buy so it. So does it for matter them. if they converted while you knew them? Are those some of the one the people it always sort of sticks with in your mind? No. In fact, the few people I know who have converted while I've known them already seemed really Jewish to me, actually, before before the fact. These are people who kind of somehow made it official, but they okay. kind of seem to be I, I think Jewish. so profoundly it, it really is the matter of the soul returning home. I know this sounds, you know, kooky, but it's it's the, the soul recognizing its its own, you know, eternal destiny. And if you're always supposed to be that, then yeah, you're always that. It's yeah. exactly right. And if you if you're not and you're just doing it because someone said, "Hey, I won't marry you unless you do it," then like, okay, well, good on you, but it's not real. But yeah. I think what I we should that. acknowledge the the challenge that a lot of converts face. You know, Bethany Mandel was on the show like a few years ago talking about like people just don't respect her as a convert, and she's gone through all this work. She's doing she's gone, going through the motions, doing the actions, and so I think that it's something for our community to really think about how we can accept. You know, if we offer conversion, we then need to accept converts. And there's something you know, ask, when you asked uh, what it's like what it, when I talk to someone who's converted, or do I consider them different. I always think of this story that it's like the one thing I remember from Hebrew school, but the rabbi said, you know, if I'm on the bus and my daughters start fighting, I take off my yarmulke. 
because I don't want to represent Judaism like with my daughters behaving badly. And for some reason, I just slip it into my pocket. And it was a very evocative scene for me. And so when someone tells me they've converted, like some people who listen to the show who I've started corresponding with regularly and I know their converts, I almost want to represent Judaism in a good way. Mm -hmm. And I like, you know, if I hear that they are treated badly or someone doesn't, isn't, you know, isn't, or they meet a more religious rabbi who wouldn't accept their conversion, I'm like... No, no. Like we have to put up. We have to. It's like so much guilt. Yeah. Like so I want. Shame, I want this Stephanie. to be a good experience for you. I want you to not regret having done this, and I want our community to sh- to represent itself well. You know, one thing that right, although if if they join the tribe, I mean, they should they should know what we're really like. They you know? should know that our daughters fight too. <laughs> I also feel like there should be swag when you convert. <laughs> what would you give? I don't know. Maybe like not a yacht. Like it should be. There should be a sweatshirt. There should be a sweatshirt, like a zip up hoodie. At or, the very least, a hoodie. Yeah. A Judy. I want a beanie with a helicopter on it. I just think that like we should start designing something for someone. Sarah Lefton. Sarah Lefton is that her name? Sarah Lefton. Sarah Lefton of Yosemite shirts. She can make something for us. I, I have a suspicion that he's converted to Judaism purely for the jokes. <laughs> Which reminds me, did you hear the one about the rabbi and the farmer's daughter? Huh? <laughs> Those aren't matzo balls. <laughs> what? And this offends you as a Jewish person? No, it offends me as a comedian. Do you think you should be making jokes like that? Why not? I'm Jewish, remember? (laughs) I know, but Jerry, it's our sense of humor that sustained us as a people for 3,000 years. 5,000. 5,000, even better. Ah, ah. Chrissy, give me a shtickle of fluoride. Okay, picture a convert. Maybe you don't have a mental image, but I have a few. Um, One is of a young man or woman who's converting before getting married to their Jewish partner. Another image I have, maybe it's a a college-age student, somebody who was exposed to Judaism at school through friends who has now found her path. Or maybe it's a middle-aged seeker, someone who is an empty nester, the kids are out of the house, and now she has been on a spiritual journey, and, and she's finally found a home in Judaism after passing through Buddhism and some ashram somewhere and, and finally is going to become a Jew. But what I think none of us pictures, if we say picture a convert, what none of us sees in our mind's eye is a preteen child, which is what makes this next segment so fascinating. We sent reporter Abby Holtzman to Savannah, Georgia, and this is the story that she sent back. My glasses fog up the second I step into the mikvah waiting room. A mikvah, or Jewish ritual bath, is usually kept around body temperature. Some say it feels like going back to the womb, and that makes sense. People come to be transformed and emerge new in some way. Today, I'm here for a conversion ceremony. After answering questions from a Beit Din or a rabbinic panel, someone who wasn't born Jewish will immerse herself in the warm waters and then exit them a Jew. As I stumble around with my foggy lenses, I feel a tug on my sleeve. It's Kate, the one who's about to become Jewish, and her little brother, Bennett. They start talking at the same time. I just—they have a hot tub in there, like a hot tub thing in there. But that's the bath that I'm gonna get into. Kate's a tall, thirteen-year-old, teetering between gangly and elegant. Bennett's her freckled sidekick with the same blonde hair. Whoa! Should we go check it out? Yeah, Yeah. sure. Kate leads us over. She's dressed up for her big day in a black velvet dress with a big bow in the middle. Normally, she'd be wearing mascara, but not today. According to Jewish law, when you immerse in the mikvah, there needs to be nothing between you and the water, not even makeup. Kate leans against the doorway and peers in at the mikvah, which is small and made of pink tiles. 
It's calm in this strange, echoey space. We're all waiting in the humid air for the ceremony to get started. People convert to Judaism all the time, but they're pretty much always adults. It's a huge decision and a long process, and no one that I talked to had ever heard of someone as young as Kate going through it. It's easy to forget how extraordinary this all is when I'm just hanging out with Kate, talking about middle school or her dog. But for Kate's extended Christian family, there's nothing ordinary about it. Kate's grandfather pokes his head into the tiled room and points to the Hebrew blessings on the wall. What's on the uh, picture over there? Can you read that? Maybe not from here, but yeah, I could read them. Probably could. He shakes his head and makes a face Kate gets a lot. Like, is this kid for real? Papa Dave comes from a long line of Catholics, and his wife Joanne taught at the same Catholic school for 35 years. He didn't expect to have a granddaughter like Kate, but he's taking it a whole lot better than his brother, a devout Baptist who goes to a tiny church in Tennessee. Kate's great-uncle was not invited today. He would argue with you all day long about the New Testament. He knows the New Testament. He's read the Bible. I have not read the whole Bible. Kate's read it twice. (laughs) Kate was two years old when her curiosity about religion started showing. Her parents, Adam, a Christian, and Jordan, an atheist, were a little mystified. I remember just driving in our neighborhood and passing a church that was being built. And she would ask us, what is that? And we would explain a church. What's a church? What do people do in that church? And she was sitting in her car seat asking me and my husband these questions. While most kids might be satisfied by a quick answer, Kate was not. Her questions about God and religion were so insistent and specific. Why do Christians believe in Jesus? What did Jesus do? Why do we believe that Jesus rose from the dead and is God's son? That her parents eventually took her to church to see for herself. And then another church, and another. Presbyterian, Baptist, Unitarian. Kate never wanted to revisit a single one. She was gathering evidence and forming her own beliefs. She does approach it almost as a scientist. Adam, however, was not used to coming up with explanations for the mysteries of the universe. Growing up quite often, you, you, you were told something, and, and even in religion class, and you, you asked that follow-up why question, it really was, well, that's just the way it is, or it's a miracle, or we can't understand God's plans. And once again, for Kate, She's still going to follow up with a why question quite often. She still wants to know more and more. For Kate, nothing felt quite right until she heard about Judaism in a first-grade lesson on world religions. Soon, to help answer her questions, her parents took her to Mikveh Israel, a local reform temple. And there, Kate really felt at home. Soon enough, she was scrambling up to the bima with the other kids to help open the ark during services. Deggy Rubin, a regular at the shul, remembers spotting Kate for the very first time. I remember seeing a little girl who looked like my daughter's age, but, you know, wasn't involved in the Jewish community because I would have known who she was. Um, so I was, I was intrigued anyway by this little blonde girl sitting there. As it happens, Deggy, a descendant of Holocaust survivors, is an ardent Jewish educator. 
Adam and Jordan soon approached her looking for a Hebrew tutor for Kate. Deggie became that and more, a general guide to the world of Judaism, somewhere Kate could direct her endless questions. She just, even the first session, um, wanted to look at the Hebrew Aleph Bet, wanted to start learning some prayers, wanted to understand, you know, what the Torah was. It, it was like a Hebrew teacher's dream. <laughs> and of course, they had to set a roadmap with so much material to cover. Five minutes of Israel, you know, 10 minutes of Holocaust. But luckily, Kate proved to be a quick study, especially with the Hebrew alphabet. During their third lesson together, Deggy put a Hebrew sentence in front of Kate. And she just went, you know, Baruch I? And she did the ch naturally. So... <laughs> Amazing. And for Kate, it's not just all about memorization. Deggie's able to talk about God with her, conversations that make her other students roll their eyes. Kate loves learning about the holidays, and Deggie's warm kitchen is the place to do it. It's filled with delicate tchotchkes. Um, little sukkah, and inside a little fruit hanging, and like a little Like mini. a Jewish home away from home. From the outside, though, Deggie's house looks different from her neighbors. It's just a few days after Christmas, and with all the decorations, it's hard not to feel a little left out. It's not just Deggie's neighborhood. The whole city of Savannah is still all a twinkle from the holidays. Seems like every door has a wreath and every diner serving biscuits and ham is swathed in tinsel. Forget about the difficulties of being a new Jew for a second. What's it like being any kind of Jew in Georgia at Christmas time? I mean, I like Christmas. I like the Christmas music. I like Christmas lights and stuff. But I don't like that it kind of relates to Christianity. And I feel like Judaism, you can't really decorate that much for it. I mean, inside a year house, you can put a menorah, dreidels, gelts, which are chocolate coins. But outside, they don't have those big inflatables, tinsel, lights. At Kate's house, a wreath wrestles for space on the front door with Star of David stickers. And in her Tudor Deggie's neighborhood, a gated community by a sprawling golf course, streets of red and green lights give way to Deggie's house, which sits apart, dark, and quiet. You feel kind of... um separated from everybody else because you realize that they celebrate one holiday, you celebrate another, but theirs is more recognized than yours. So you feel like not as important, I guess. I asked Kate if she ever wishes that she were near more Jews. At some points, I think yes, because I feel like it would be more fun and uh, meaningful to get together and really celebrate the holidays to their extent instead of just what I know through Google because I can't really ask anybody about the holiday. Kate only really knows one Jew her age, her best friend Sage, who recently had her over for Hanukkah. And then my friend Sage invited us over and um, helped me understand the holiday more and what it's supposed to feel like with like more people because I celebrated with her, her brother, her parents, and then other Jewish people that her parents were friends with. So it was cool to see how it was with like a whole family of people. We had matzo ball soup, we had salad, we had challah bread, which is very good. Um, we had um, chicken. We just had like a whole bunch of Jewish food. Instead at my house, we would have like traditional Southern food, I guess, like steak and corn and 
um, stuff instead of traditional Jewish foods on that night. Hanukkah at Kate's house is different than at Sage's. Hanukkah is more minimal when you're the only Jewish person in the family um, because basically you say the prayers, light the candles, you get um, chocolate gout, chocolate, um, maybe like a present, and then you're kind of done instead of more traditional Jewish meals like matzo ball soup, um, chickpeas, stuff like that. And so you feel like it's more minimalistic instead of celebrating the whole holiday. I feel like you're only celebrating one part. But being Jewish for Kate does make her feel connected, even if she doesn't always have the Jewish community that she craves nearby. Because it's all, it's almost like having a great big Jewish family. Back in the humid, flowered mikvah waiting room, Kate's cheering squad squishes in. There's her tutor, Deggy, her little brother, Bennett, snuggled between his grandparents, and then her parents, Adam and Jordan. They're blinking back tears. The rabbi and a few temple members grab stools and face Kate, who's squirming just a little bit. She aces the rabbi's examination. But before the moment we've all been waiting for, they ask her what's next for her at shul. Kate says that she'll be starting Sunday school at the temple soon, and Jordan jumps in from the back of the room. No, honey, you mean shalom school. Rabbi Haas says, actually, I call it Sunday school most of the time, and everyone laughs and relaxes their shoulders a little bit. Kate leaves to make it official in the mikvah, and after 20 minutes, she comes back out grinning with wet hair as everyone sings a song of celebration. Deggie's known all along that Kate's a smart and spiritual kid, but part of her believes there's something more going on. I have to sometimes stop and wonder if maybe she just has a Jewish soul. Jews don't talk a lot about reincarnation, Deggie says, but there is an idea that sometimes Jewish souls need to come back to life if they've left something undone here on Earth. And it's not crazy to think that they might come back once in a while in a non-Jewish body. Everything Kate learned, Deggie says, seemed to just confirm what Kate already knew. Um, as if it was as if it was a soul saying, you know, feed me. <laughs> I have it here. It's ready. It's willing. Just, you know, give me the information I need. There is some sadness in Kate's story, though, Deggie thinks. Being special can sometimes be lonely. When we think of a Jewish community, um, I've always been told or taught or thought, you know, Judaism can't exist individually. You know, you need to have a minion to have services. If you want, if you're keeping kosher, you need to have enough people so that you can have a kosher butcher, whatever that you need other people. Um, but maybe she defies that a little bit. And it, it's made me sometimes think, you know, maybe one can be very, very just individually Jewish and that that, that might be enough. Kate may be individually Jewish, but tonight she's not alone. Tonight, Kate's dad, Adam, is making brisket. He's making brisket and latkes and chicken schnitzel, hummus and falafel with pita, all recipes he's found online and is trying out for the very first time. It's both improvisation and tradition, and in that way, wholly Jewish. Sometimes the journey chooses you and not the other way around. 
I don't know how, but I just knew that you would lead me to sacred ground. Sacred ground. That was Abby Holtzman reporting from Savannah, Georgia. You can find more of her work at medium.com slash at Abby Holtzman. But I was ready to believe. That's all right, as long as you're with me. Do you know what the number 18 means in Judaism? It is the numerological number for chai. It's the numerical value assigned to the word for life in the medieval Kabbalistic system of assigning numbers to letters. So 18 is actually the denomination in which a lot of Jews give money, like bar mitzvah gifts, wedding gifts, $18, $180, $1,800. Listen, if you liked this show and you think about giving $18 to us, we would be so grateful. If everyone who enjoyed this show gave us $18, we could skip our entire fundraising drive this summer. So how about it, gang? Go to tabletmag.com donate and give some multiple of 18, whatever it might be. And look, whether you do that or not, we still want to hear from you. Drop us a line and let us know how we did. You can write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave us a voicemail, 914-570-4869. That's 914-570-4869. We also do a regular column at tabletmag.com called Ask Unorthodox. Send us your questions for Ask Unorthodox. Ask us for etiquette tips or advice about dealing with your in-laws or wisdom on Judaism or which summer camp to send your kids to or whether you can wear a knit yarmulke in an air-conditioned house. I don't know. I just made that up. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. We have the pleasure of uh, having on the phone with us straight out of Israel, Rabbi Seth Farber, the founder and director of ITIM, the leading advocacy organization working to build a Jewish and democratic Israel in which all Jews, imagine that, can lead full Jewish lives. ITIM helps people navigate all areas of Jewish life in Israel, uh, which sometimes could be a big, big deal. And we are delighted to have him with us. Hello, Rabbi. Hello. Hi. Nice to be with you. So uh, tell us, because I think some of our uh, listeners may be completely obsessed with this topic and others may be absolutely unfamiliar with it. What makes the conversion process in Israel different than what we know from here? Conversion throughout the generations was a personal act. Someone came, wanted to join the community, connected with the community structures and infrastructure, and became part of that community and went through certain rituals based on a certain personal commitment. Here in Israel, Conversion is a civil act. It's sponsored and run by the government for the most part. That means there's a bureaucracy involved. It means that it's very impersonal for the most part. And uh, there's a struggle in Israel. Conversion is part of that struggle about the way Jewish life should look in this country and how respectful the state of Israel should be to the diversity of the Jewish world. So you have the Rabbanut, right, which is the chief rabbinate, which makes these determinations, which is an official body. Right. So the rabbinate, which essentially today controls national conversion in Israel, they represent one stream of orthodoxy and 
they're performing conversions here for uh, a couple of thousand people a year. And then there are the streams of Judaism, uh, the conservative movement, the reform movement that does another couple of hundred a year, each of them. And I'm involved, involved, I'm actually started and am running kind of a, what some people have called a rogue conversion court and what some people call the visionary conversion court, which is essentially a modern orthodox court that's competing with the rabbinate itself. In this country, we have more than 400,000 people who made Aliyah as Jews who aren't fully recognized as Jews by the state of Israel, primarily immigrants from the former Soviet Union who are patrilineal Jews or the children of. They're actually citizens of Israel every day. I deal with soldiers in the IDF who made Aliyah, who are citizens of Israel, who are not halachically Jewish and are not recognized as Jewish by the state of Israel. And because of that, they're actually listed as no religion in the population registry here. And that means they can't get married here. People who suffered as Jews, people who were, you know, exposed to anti-Semitism, people who now have made their decision there, they've locked their destiny to the destiny of the Jewish people here in Israel. They serve in the army. I don't like talking about people who die in the army and not die in the army. These are people who want to live in Israel. They want to live full Jewish lives. And we have a responsibility to help them. So how does a rabbinate uh, treat you guys? You get like cease and desist letters. Do they come and like shoot you dirty looks? What, what, what's kind of like the, the dynamic? Because I, I would assume that they see you guys as a big threat. Look, our, our project, which is called Yurk Halakha, right, Halachic Conversion, uh, is now doing 18% of all the Orthodox conversions in Israel. The rabbinate sees us as a threat. They've never had to deal with this before. There's never been this kind of... Uh, grassroots rebellion. I don't know a better word for it that says you guys are failing in your historical responsibility towards the future of the Jewish people. So they see us with a lot of threat. We get uh, a lot of attempts to legislate us out of existence, or they send letters sometimes to people who we convert and say, hey, you know, no. So wait a minute. Basically, just to be clear for our listeners, you guys are a modern Orthodox rabbinic court that's doing 18% of all conversions. The other uh, 82% are being done by what we can loosely call the ultra-Orthodox official chief rabbinate. The empire. The he's, empire. He's the Han Solo of Orthodox <laughs> conversions. It's, it's amazing. It's a monopoly. Sorry, it's a monopoly. So first of all, you're taking a bite out of their business, which I assume there's money involved, right? They get paid when they do a conversion, right? So don't get paid by the by the average citizen in this country. The government has, I mean, if I told you the numbers, you'd, be, you'd, be, you'd fall off your chair, and I'm sure the listeners will also, but the government of Israel spent something like $40 million a year on conversion in this country. My rabbi will, will do it for less. Not, I know a guy in Connecticut <laughs> who, will, who will charge less than they're charging per conversion. So, so we also don't, we at New York, we also don't charge for conversion. And by the way, 18%, I want to make it just clear for the listeners that 18% is a number that's growing. Every month it's growing. Right now we're at 18%. A year ago we were at like 11%. So let's say some guy, we'll call him Boris. He's, he's a Russian Jew. He's, his father is Jewish, but his mother wasn't. He needs to go through a conversion if he wants to marry in Israel. He comes, he does it through your court. He does a wonderful job. You know, uh, he gets, he gets a, a, a free keeper at the end. Um, does, <laughs> does his marriage then get recognized or can the chief rabbinate still keep him out and say you're not Jewish enough because we didn't do it because Rabbi Seth did it and he's a, he's a heretic and we don't respect his conversions? Right. So it's, a, it's, it's the question of all questions. I want to make two statements, okay? One, that our main focus is on children under bar and bat mitzvah, whose parents want them to convert. We're playing a long game here, not a short game. Almost 70% of our conversions 
our kids under bar and bar mitzvah. And to that extent, I don't really have to answer your question because they, those kids are not getting married right now. But to speak to the issue at hand, we perform weddings outside of the rabbinate right now for the people who convert with us. Adults who convert with us who want to get married, we will do it. It is not recognized in Israel. We send those people overseas to be married in a civil ceremony overseas, and then they come back and we do a chuppah for them in Israel. A halachic, orthodox chuppah, but it's not recognized. And this is, a, this is a battle we are having with the chief rabbinate of Israel. And our game plan, which I'm not embarrassed to share with you, or to share with all the listeners, or to share with the chief rabbinate, is that we're simply going to win the numbers game. If we've gone up from zero to 11 to 18%, right, within four years, according to our business plan, according to our models, we will be comp- converting as many people as the rabbinate is. You're disrupting the rabbinate model. <laughs> You're like the <laughs> oh, killer app. OG disruptors. Yeah. Amazing. And, and plus, we are a major disruptor. Get married with you, free trip to Cyprus, right? Yes, yes. correct. So, they feel it. Okay. And they're, they're threatened by it. Well, as, as like w- I said, this hasn't happened before. By the way, it hasn't happened on both sides. They've never felt the threat. There's also been incredible sea change in the attitude of the religious Zionist slash modern Orthodox. And again, I don't want to go into those distinctions right now, but the kippah shugah, right? The knitted kippah wearing rabbis, there's been a huge sea change. Some of our rabbis who are performing conversions for us, not just supporting Catholic, they're actually performing conversions, are rabbis, I don't want to mention their names, but they're rabbis who represent the very right wing of the religious Zionist movement, right? Some of the more prominent settler rabbis, which again doesn't play necessarily well in the liberal community, but it shows that we've actually gotten traction across the board in the religious Zionist community. I love so much that you're identifying them because this, of course, is how you identify them versus th- these are the guys in the knit kippot, the knit yarmulkes versus the black felt yarmulkes. I mean, that's a real political and religious distinction over there, uh, which, of course, in America we know because this TV show, Shrugim, is on Netflix. Um, but right. <laughs> before we let you go, one final question, Rabbi. One final... None of those guys are converting with us. <laughs> <laughs> so one, one, final, one final question. I mean, historically, you go back to Torah, right? And, and this, is, this is the week of Shavuot, the first convert in Torah, Ruth, uh, she didn't have to go through a process. She didn't have to go to a, a you know a, a three judge panel. She just said, "Look, I'm throwing in my lot with my mother in law. I'm going to wander with her, and that was good enough for everyone." Why do we even have to have a big process? I mean, we're going to have people on our show today who have you know basically thrown in their lot with Jews. In one case, a woman who's been living a Jewish life for thirty years. Why do we? Why did we build up this whole bureaucracy and this whole structure? Again, I think if you read the book of Ruth closely, you'll see that. Uh it wasn't just in a moment that Ruth decided to no, not make just that in a moment. transition, but there's no question. And I say this, you know, with tremendous admiration for uh, the development of the halacha and, you know, and, and, and a strong sense of fealty towards it. Halacha has evolved over time, and we can't simply ignore, we can't simply ignore the norms of uh, halachic practice that have carried us through generations. Right? We can have different interpretations of them, and it could very well be in the state of Israel, and that could well be. I think it must have a certain respect for different avenues of access into the Jewish people. But to simply go back to a biblical model, I think, is not as relevant as perhaps, you know, I think it's, it's simple to say, but I think it doesn't take into account the vicissitudes of the evolving of Jewish, the Jewish community. That being said, there are certain realities within uh, contemporary Jewish life, and even with contemporary Orthodox life, that I think lend themselves to very simple solutions to a very complex problem. In today's society, where people are coming from the inside and not from the outside, 
when there's when there's a lot at stake in terms of the future of the stability of the state of Israel. I think those issues demand from us to find solutions, in my opinion, halachic solutions, which I think are easily accessible, that will ena- enable us to bring the Jewish communities that have made Aliyah back into the fold completely. They're here. They're Jews. They're Jews. They're part of our community. Rabbi Farber. Amen. Go, go get them. Go get them. Dianu. And you know what? We think your, your market share is only going to grow. Rabbi Seth Farber is the founder of Itim, which advocates for people who want to build Jewish lives in a Jewish and democratic Israel. And he also is taking a bite out of the ultra-Orthodox monopoly on conversions. Thank you so much for being on Unorthodox. Thank you. Thank you all. Você não sabe se vai ou vem Pouco importa se o dinheiro é seu Ei, baby, seu cabelo é legal Moda na gringa é Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. 
A few months ago, a piece came into Tablet from a young scientist named Nathan Steiger. We had never heard of him. He had never written for us before, and we didn't know what to expect. So we were blown away to read his gorgeous, moving tale of how this Mormon husband and father, a guy who had done the whole Mormon deal, the two-year mission, knocking on doors, the whole Mormon Megillah, had discovered that he was really a Jew at heart. We ran his essay on Tablet's website, and then we realized, wait a second, this guy would be perfect for our conversion episode. Here's Nathan Steiger. Have a listen. It was during my Mormon wedding that I first felt a bewildering primal Jewishness. Yet, as a Mormon, I was raised to be intrigued by Judaism. After all, the Book of Mormon tells the story of a group of Israelites who made their way to ancient America, and Mormonism itself is a kind of fusion between Methodist Christianity and pre-Rabbinic Judaism. And now, as my bride and I knelt across the altar, the words of the blessing bestowed at every Mormon wedding rushed by me and tell the line, I seal upon you the blessings of kingdoms, thrones, principalities, powers, dominions, and exaltations, with all the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those words broke into my chest, and I began to cry. With all the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In that moment, I felt welded not only to my wife, but to the great chain of being, reaching back through an ancient family to the divine. My childhood was a wholesome one, living first in Utah and then moving as a teenager with my family to Texas. We went to church every Sunday, and I loved religious learning. After high school, I was sent to Toronto as a missionary. Over two years, I had thousands of religious conversations with people from an incredibly diverse set of cultural and intellectual perspectives. I had some conversion successes, but I often felt frustrated, knocking on doors, offering answers to questions that very few people cared about or even understood. How do I find the one true church? How can I be cleansed of my sins and gain eternal life? It seemed as though my answers only made sense within the Mormon worldview. Step outside that worldview or question its bedrock, and I could only circle back and state the worldview more forcefully. After my mission, I enrolled at Brigham Young University, where I majored in physics but took many religion courses. I needed to learn more about the diverse worldviews I had encountered in Toronto. What was the lived experience of a Muslim, an Anglican, a Jew, a Buddhist, or a secular humanist? What was going on inside their heads and in their communities? Early in this spiritual journey, I was delighted to find a partner in Rochelle, who shared my restless curiosity about the world. She had been Mormon missionary in Montreal. We loved taking classes together, first as we were dating, and then after we were married, one of the first courses we took together was an introduction to Judaism. Besides disabusing us of the many misconceptions we had unreflectingly absorbed about Jews and Judaism, the course also offered us an opportunity to attend a communal Passover Seder. Mormonism doesn't have anything like the Seder, a symbolic meal built around discussing and singing about a story. It was by turns engaging and silly, uplifting and fun. It was an ingenious way to elevate mealtime conversation out of the banality that it usually inhabits. After that Seder, we decided to either attend a Seder or run our own every year from then on. During my undergraduate years, my questions about Mormonism multiplied tenfold. When I did find answers, they often didn't fit within the tidy boundaries of accepted Mormon doctrine. 
The problem with all this was that Mormonism is a religion of certainty. Beliefs are paramount. Expressions of knowing accepted teachings permeate every Sunday service and every religious lesson and are essential to one's good standing in the church. I know that Jesus died for my sins. I know that the Book of Mormon is literally and historically true. In Mormonism's lay-led religious organization, where everyone engages in teaching and learning together, it's impossible to completely hide your beliefs or lack thereof. Plus, every other year you are interviewed by the local leadership, in part to ensure that you assent to a list of specific beliefs. As my views became more unorthodox, dialogue with other Mormons became increasingly fraught for me and them. For years, I tried mightily to make the traditional beliefs hold together. But by the time I was in graduate school at the University of Washington in Seattle, many of my beliefs had morphed into non-literal, metaphorical versions of the originals, while others just dissolved into oblivion. This was agonizing. I cherished my religion and my community, and I continued to devote many hours a week to them. I had believed wholeheartedly in the literal divinity of a sweet family man Jesus of suburban America. But I had come to see that the historical Jesus, who walked the dusty roads of Roman Judea, was radically different. I had believed in the almost superhuman power and saintliness of Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. But the facts of his turbulent, provocative life seemed to stubbornly undermine the hagiographies. After reading dozens of books about the Book of Mormon and talking with trusted friends, I could see the Book of Mormon as sincere religious folk art, but I couldn't bring myself to believe that it had any historical basis in ancient America. Where beliefs had slipped away for me and Rochelle, study, ritual, and practice of all varieties became ever more important to us. We reached out for anything that we could hold on to. We more frequently attended the special services held in Mormon temples. We started hosting a religious book club. We began a meditation practice, and I became absorbed in the writings of Tolstoy, Montaigne, and Whitman. I went on a five-day walking pilgrimage from London to Canterbury Cathedral. We routinely attended Jewish lecture events held at my university. We also kept up a practice of hosting annual Passover seders. We bought a large stack of Haggadot and would host seders with about 20 of our close Mormon friends. Some of these friends even told us that the seder was the spiritual highlight of their year, as it was for us. One of the things I mourned most about my loss of faith was the loss of a purpose and passion. As a Mormon missionary, I had had zeal without knowledge. Through most of my 20s, I had acquired knowledge at the expense of zeal. But was it possible to embody both zeal and knowledge? That state of being seemed mythical to me. Until one day, I came across an old interview with Rabbi Sharon Browse. She spoke with a dynamic passion, yet she neither ignored the problems of religion, nor was she incapacitated by them. Rather, she had the tremendous ability to both transform and transcend them. As I listened again and again to this interview, I remembered a remark made by the historian Jonathan Sarna, that the future of Judaism has always been driven by the young. Unlike anything in Mormonism, young Jews are the innovators, the bold leaders, the new music makers. Emboldened, I sought out the sermons and teachings of other contemporary rabbis and Jewish thinkers. I began to see Judaism not just as a repository of interesting traditions, but as a mode of deep, informed, and contemporary religious living. I began to wonder if one day I might become Jewish.
For both Rochelle and me, a breaking point with Mormonism came in 2015. In November, a week before I was set to defend my PhD dissertation, the top Mormon leadership released policies that declared that Mormons and same-sex marriages were apostates, that their children were to be denied Mormon religious rights, like baby naming and baptism. In other words, LGBT families could never be a part of Mormonism. For us and other progressive Mormons, the policies were utterly disheartening. Yet the broader Mormon people accepted them as God's will and vigorously defended them. The Sunday after their release, our local church became a battleground. At the end of the last meeting of the day, I just sat in the back of the room with Rochelle and a handful of friends and wept. After having lost nearly all of my Mormon beliefs, I still held on to the sense that I was a part of the Mormon people. But after that Sunday, I had nothing left. But there, in the midst of our despair, we realized that we had also been given the radical gift to choose our spiritual and communal destiny. Perhaps we could simply become secular humanists, completely free of the bad odors of religion, as Nietzsche called them. But the more we thought about it, the more the path of secularism seemed untenable for us. Without a system to inherit in a strong communal context, it seemed like a heroic effort to keep life from collapsing into a bare cycle of consumerism. Work, buy, eat, sleep, repeat. We knew what living a deeply religious life could be like. We had felt the thickness it gave to lived experience. We had seen how it bound friends and community. We had known how it consoled and had embedded cycles of meaning into the passage of life and religious communities have endured for hundreds of generations. In two months, our family of four was leaving Seattle for a job in New York, a city where countless people have remade themselves. Above all, it was the city at the heart of American Judaism. If ever there was a place where Judaism could work out for us, it would be New York. Though when we moved to the Upper West Side, we only had a secondhand understanding of Jewish culture that we had learned mostly from books. We had no family and very few friends in the city. To start over religiously was humbling and terrifying. Still, the array of Judaisms was exciting and liberating. You could be an ardent social justice seeker, a kosher keeper, a free spirit, a meticulous scholar, a secular humanist, a Hasid drunk with the love of God, or somehow all of these at once. Eventually, we found a warm, friendly synagogue community with soulful music and passionate rabbis. We felt completely fully welcomed. Doubts, questions, vulnerabilities, religious baggage, and all. Soon we began the conversion process. In Mormonism, someone can go from knowing absolutely nothing to being a member in a month's time. Listen to a half dozen lessons, attend church a few times, pass a couple of interviews, take a trip to the baptismal font, and you're in. Conversion to Judaism requires at least a year-long process of classes, attending services, participating in the full array of Jewish holidays throughout the year, you are to read widely and to ask many questions. Where Mormonism restricts information and presents itself as a religion that knows all the relevant answers about the life to come, Judaism overflows with information, loves questions for their own sake, and busies itself living out the questions of the present. Over the course of about a year, we became enamored of living Jewishly. In Judaism, Shabbat was my first and most passionate love. In the spirit of Dayenu, I think Shabbat is enough to convert for alone. It is a remarkable gift to be part of a community where one day each week is conscientiously lived with good food, 
family and friends, books and song, utterly free of the distractions of technology and commerce. For me, an intentional Shabbat is the central Jewish experience. Like many before me, I've become serendipitously smitten with the Talmud. Reading the Talmud is like eavesdropping on favorite relatives as they swap stories and debate how to live and the meaning of it all. Its cacophony of mostly respectful dissenting voices has become a model for me of engaged discussion. The first time I stumbled into an after-meal round of passionate nagoon singing was revelatory. Nothing in my nearly 30 years of singing hymns prepared me for nagunim. Those evocative melodies dismantled from words, sung round and round again until they evaporate into soulful silence. I've never been the dancing type, and Mormon services are puritanically still, but when I first saw dozens of people join hands in exuberant dancing during a Friday night singing of Lecha Dodi, I cried. Before long, I just had to join the dance. After a decade of slow dying, spiritual and communal life surged back into me again. Blessed are you who revives the dead. The spring morning our family went to the mikveh, it was warm and sunny outside. Inside, the mikveh occupied the lower floor of a brownstone building on the Upper West Side. We met with our Beit Dean, our panel of three rabbis, and talked about where we had been and where we were going. We discussed what Jewish practices we loved and which had been difficult. We discussed our future learning and how we would contribute our talents to the Jewish people. We then made our way to the respective men's and women's mikvehs. I went with one of my rabbis into the room and then down alone into the water. I paused in the water, breathing several slow breaths. Then I immersed, pulling my feet from the floor and bringing my head down and in, fetus-like. Kosher, my rabbi called out. I recited the blessing for washing in the mikveh, and under I went again. Kosher. I paused again and between sobs recited the final blessing. Submerged again and up again, reborn. Kosher. Then, from just beyond the door, our friends and the other rabbis began to sing. Rochelle and our daughters followed in the women's mikveh. Back in the main room together, our family was covered and encircled by the talit of a much-beloved rabbi. With the talit over us, surrounded by our friends and rabbis, we sang, cried, danced. That was Nathan Steiger, a couple weeks ago, recording in Crosstown Studios in Harlem. All right, here's a story that is wonderfully close to home. Our producer, Shira Talushkin, is one of four children, and her older sister, Naomi, who's a graduate student in Australia, has become engaged down in Australia to Ben, who is in the Australian Navy. He's a submariner, as apparently I have learned they call people who work in submarines. In the lead up to their wedding, Ben is studying for conversion. He's going to become a Jew, which has raised some really deep and meaningful questions between the two of them. So we got them to sit down and talk about how Judaism looks different from either side of the conversion, when one partner grew up in the tradition and the other is joining it a little bit later on. I am Naomi Tlishkin, um, and I'm getting a PhD um, at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, um, and I'm a writer. Hi, Naomi. I'm Ben Piggott. I'm uh, getting married to Naomi Tulushkin, and I'm an Australian <laughs> naval officer. What does it mean to me that Ben is going to be Jewish? Um, so we we sort of spoke before about um, 
about going to see The Merchant of Venice, which was um, a couple of months ago now. And I guess that was a bit of a turning point in in feeling Jewish because because um, you watch the thing and it's um, like there's a clear divide between the Jewish character and the rest of the characters, right? So Naomi and I sort of both felt like we were very on Team Shylock for the for the whole play. Like we sort of sort of felt very sympathetic towards the character. Ben, do you remember this when we were sitting in the car? talking about the Australian Jews in Parliament. Yeah, I have really fond memories of that um, of that particular <laughs> fight. I thought that was a, a really interesting turning point in our, not a turning point maybe, but a, a, it really <laughs> sort of highlighted the, the differences in how you and I think about being Jewish, I think. How come? Why? Well... So to to give the sort of background, um, Australia is in the in the midst of a of a constitutional crisis at the moment because a a lot of members of parliament are dual citizens, which is illegal under the constitution. So they have had to resign, um, and there was this sort of uh, very minor question because um, it's was sort of widely widely dismissed that um, that this would actually happen. But um, there was a question about whether um, a couple of Jewish members of the house would have to resign because they were granted uh, citizenship of places like Hungary in the aftermath of the Second World War. So they they might have been dual citizens for the purposes of the constitution and therefore ineligible to sit in parliament. Didn't someone also bring up something about how, like, because if you're Jewish, you could become a citizen of Israel, that, like, it was in question if you were a dual citizen? Right. So that had been, there had been some speculation about that um, because Israel obviously gives you the provision to make Aliyah. Yeah. But the sort of, that that has no, as we later sort of got to in our, in our conversation at the time, um, that was not a consideration for the high court in determining if someone was a dual citizen or not, because you okay. you weren't actually a citizen, even though it was a possibility. Okay. But you and I sort of had it out at the time about whether this was anti-Semitic or not. And I thought no, and you thought yes, which was, I thought, really highlighted how we think about that differently. Well, no. And I remember what I said, because I said that you were on the side of Australia, but not on the side of the Jews. And <laughs> did you remember this? Right. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's an interesting point, because I think you feel... Jewish first and American second, if if that's if that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I f- think I feel Australian first and Jewish second. Yes, yes, and I think that that is a really interesting difference. Um, not to say that I think I think especially in America, most Jews feel pretty interchangeably American and Jewish. But I know for me personally, and I think a lot of Jews do feel this way. I certainly my identity is Jewish first before it's American. Um, I think of myself as Jewish before I think of myself as American, and. If I meet a Jewish person internationally, like I feel more close to them than if I meet a fellow American while I'm abroad, which I think says a lot. When I lived in Singapore, it was great to meet other Americans. It was always fun um, and always felt like you had that click. Oh, okay, you and I are both, you know, from the States, but the click was stronger. And I think it just more palpable when I met Jews abroad in Singapore. I guess that would seem like a like a interesting difference. But I wonder, Ben, do you think that like because you're in the midst of converting now, but after you've you're finished your conversion and you're Jewish for a while, do you think that you would start thinking of yourself as Jewish first or do you think maybe not? To be honest, I don't know. And it's sort of I think it's too early. I won't know that until I'm until I'm there. Right. Right. Um, that's true. <laughs> but it's interesting to think about that thing you described about meeting people overseas and and mm-hmm. feeling like you're in the clique because you're Jewish. 
that's how I feel when I meet other people that are in the Navy. Oh, interesting. So even if they're in the Navy, but they're not Australian. Right. Um, yeah, and especially, I can especially submariners. Yeah. Okay. So if you met like a submariner who was from India or something. Right. Which I did when we, when we went to India. Do so you feel that more strongly than Australians? Yeah. Like Navy people first? Yes, for sure. Okay. So you're a Navy person first, Australian second, or maybe Navy first, Jewish second. <laughs> and it makes sense, right? Because I've spent um, the last 10 years in that institution. Yeah. Um, and you've spent your entire life in, in Jewish institutions. So I think it's sort of a, we're, we're products of our environments in that way. Well, also, and I feel like because maybe something similar, like if you're in the Navy, you have a certain set of experiences that people outside of the Navy cannot relate to. Um, like you, you physically, like you've lived in submarines and you're on ships and you have experiences that most people just don't have. And I wonder if there's that same connection, like you've gone through something that most people have never gone through or you, you've done things most people haven't done. And I feel like with Jews, there can be a sense of, um, even if you haven't gone through anything tough, but just that you have experiences for um, sure. on a type of family or culture that like most of the people d- wouldn't understand. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's interesting to compare those experiences that way, I think. Yeah. Last October, we here at Unorthodox got one of our favorite letters of all time. We read it on the air back then, but I think it's worth reading again. Hi, Mark, Stephanie, and Liel. My wife and I have become loyal listeners over the past year after a friend first recommended Unorthodox. There's no question that our weekly listen has increased our Jewish consciousness and made us feel more connected to Jews and Judaism. Not unrelated, my wife, Yolanda Wu, decided sometime last year after we started listening and after many years of living with me, a Jew, and seeing our two kids become B'nai Mitzvot, that she was ready to take the plunge and complete her conversion, begun before our wedding 20 years ago. She will enter the mikvah for the first time on Thursday, October 26th and emerge a Jewess. It would mean so much to both of us if you could shout out to her on your show that week with a hearty mazel tov as, quote, Yolanda Wu becomes a Jew. You guys are doing amazing work. Keep it up. Thank you so much. Neil, Brooklyn, New York. Well, we did shout out. And we later (laughs) met Yolanda because she came to an event we did at Beloved, the community center in Brooklyn. We gave her big hugs. But we didn't really get to know her as well as we would have liked. We didn't get the whole story. So here today. Until now. In the studio, Yolanda Wu. You are a Jew. Welcome, Yolanda. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here. Such an honor to have you. So we really wanted to get for this special conversion episode, like we wanted to get the backstory. Like, how did you grow up? And I mean, I actually know this because I've read your conversion essay. I didn't. Do, it's does, excellent. Does everyone have to write up? Do you have to write a paper to convert to every? Is that part of it? Some rabbis require it. Yeah. yeah. I really resisted, but I, I did too. <laughs> so you wrote this nine page paper, which we have read, which is. Which, by the way, I'm sorry. Did you start writing like the night before? Because <laughs> that's what I would do. Double she pulled space. My Jew paper is due in the morning. (laughs) For for our listeners who don't know, like, you know, how did how did you grow up? Had you had you ever seen a Jew before you met Neil? So I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts. So yes. So yes. 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 The short answer is yes. Um, And I felt very comfortable in Jewish culture. I definitely never predicted or thought that I would one day become a Jewess. But as it turns out, I married Neil. We met when we were young and you know, we decided before we got married that we were going to have a Jewish household. And so our kids are became bar bar mitzvah. We are very close to our rabbi, Ellen Lippman at Kolot Hayenu in Brooklyn. Give a shout out to them. Shout out. And 
I actually had taken a conversion class before I got married as a condition for having a Jewish wedding. And at that time, when I was 30, I really didn't want to convert. It didn't feel right to me. And I was already going through this big identity change, getting married. Maybe you went through this, Stephanie. I don't know. Um, But I just wasn't kind of mature enough to take that step. And then it kind of snuck up on me. 20 years of living a Jewish life, raising these kids, feeling for all intents and purposes Jewish. Um, After all that happened, I turned 50 and I was just like, oh, my God. Time, I, time to throw time, down. Time to do <laughs> so it. No on. one's let's, paying attention now. I'm just going to do it. Let's take it from the top. So so here you are at 30. You're about to get married. And you're saying, okay, well, you know, this doesn't feel right, which, you know, I totally get. But we're going to make a Jewish household. What, what did that mean to you? How did you kind of go about thinking about that? Well, I wasn't raised Christian. I was raised with no religion. So it was really taking on all the trappings of Judaism. You know, observing Shabbat, going to services. Um, we knew that our kids would become bar bat mitzvah. I think there actually are more people than you think, like me, who were kind of lurking on the outside of Judaism, but I fasted for Yom Kippur every year, and my kids were like, what are you doing? I was like, you don't have to we do that. I know it's kind of like it. It I feels think, meaningful to me. I think we need a term for that. I'm going to suggest non-verts, which are non-converts. Better which, than inverts. But were there inverts. people yeah. who made you feel like because you hadn't taken li- the literal plunge, were they like, oh, you're actually not Jewish, because even though you do all the things... That's a really good question. Actually, no, it wasn't until I decided that I was going to become Jewish and I told people that people either said, A, oh, I thought you did that years <laughs> ago. Like, you're not a Jew. Right. Or B, it kind of like raised all these like questions in people's minds. My Jewish friends were like, oh my God, I'm not Jewish enough. You're going to be more Jewish than me. You're going to be a better Jew than me. Um, and then I have like one really good friend who I'm like a really dear friend who said to me, you know what? You can become Jewish in your mind, no matter what you do, no matter how much you study, no matter how much you learn, no matter how often you go to services, you'll never seem Jewish to me. And I was like, okay, that's that is fine. Cold. And, and I hope that's, a, that's an ex-friend. No, I, she's still a dear friend. I respect her. I mean, she was just saying, I can't get beyond it. You know, I would never think of you as Jewish, but no matter what. what. But what, what is that? Because she's known you and you were living a very literal Jewish life, right? I think it has to do with race. I have to say I'm Chinese American. And I feel like for some um, like very Ashkin normative Jews, it just, you look at a person of color and you're just like, ah, uh, does uh, not com- you're, compute, you're, does you're not weird. a Jew. Yeah, like, it's okay. I mean... People are entitled to their opinions. Is it okay? It doesn't seem okay. It's okay with me. You guys are shaking your heads. It's okay with me because I can't do anything to change that. And you said in your essay very movingly, it's like, look, you're 50. You've you've grown into yourself. You are a... You are a confident grown-up at this point. That might have been less okay, I gathered, if you, when you were 25 or 30. But that at this point in life, you're like, you, you, you know who you are. Yeah, I think that's right. And then I talked to my kids about it who are biracial. One of them looks really Asian, and one of them looks, like, totally white. And so we joke about it all the time in the family. Like, we're always, like, race-baiting each other. Um, <laughs> um, but my Chinese-looking son, How does that Oscar, go? <laughs> oh, it's, it's just the way we are. But Oscar gets questions like, what? You're Jewish? Like people think that he's joking. And then my daughter, Ruby, like no question. She's, she looks Jewish. You know, Do I, there are a lot of, I would say of the Jews of color in America, and there's no way we have statistics on this, but a sizable percentage of them are people of Asian ancestry who are Jewish, many of them halakhically because they had an Asian American father and a, Jew, a halakhically Jewish mother, many of them because of conversion somewhere along the way, or they're in communities that just accept them as Jewish because of who their father is or because they just show up. But there's a pretty sizable community of Asian American Jews. Um, Do you feel like solidarity within that community, especially living in New York? You're not alone, right? Absolutely. I know a couple 
in my congregation. And then I went to um, this mikvah on the Upper West Side for my Beit Dean. Oh, the fancy mikvah? It was super. It was like a spa. It was, it a was spa. I was like, oh my god! It was so I had to come nice. back Every six here. months, I someone like, mentions that mikvah. It's like, oh, the the nice one. It is so nice. <laughs> it was so nice. This is the one you went to before your wedding. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Which, so, by the way, is required part of the conversion. Oh, they give process. you a, like a coupon yeah. on the way to out. Fairway. Oh my god. So <laughs> my bait dean was in the dressing room, but as I was leaving, my rabbi was like, oh my god, do you see who's out there? It was Andrew Bookdahl, who is a Korean woman rabbi at central synagogue and i was like oh my god it's Andrew. <laughs> and she's like we can't interrupt her she's in the middle of another bait dean and so i just sort of was like she's like you know celebrity to me she's amazing she's amazing have she, you guys had her on the show you know but i've heard, I, I stream sure. her on on the high holidays you do so my, beautiful my voice. celebrity you know my celebrity connection is she led the first high holiday services I ever went to because we were in college together and she was a junior in college and she had basically created a reform high holiday service um, as an alternative to the big you know there's a big sort of conservative like mainstream centrist like the one that everyone went to and she was doing a reform thing with her guitar as a junior in college and a friend was like let's go to that one she's really cool I didn't oh I was I, God, I'd literally I been in college even more. a week um, so yeah no she goes 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 deep in my own in my own Jewish history but um but I mean, say a bit more about that sort of solidarity question. Do you are there sort of are you relieved when you walk into a service or something or into a room if you see another Asian American Jew? Or is it just a kind of warm feeling like when we're traveling abroad and we see any other Jew? Yeah. I mean, well, that's a good point about going abroad. I mean, I think outside of the US, there are there are a lot of Jews of color. But in New York, like, you know, because at Colote, there are a lot of Jews of color. I think it's just part of that warm feeling. But I think it's kind of cool that there are more of us out there. Mm -hmm. And the thing about my friend is like she's just going to kind of get it over time or not. You know, we'll still be friends. But I know like I have another friend who um, was Catholic. She hasn't told her family that she converted to Judaism. <laughs> but How she, long has it been? <laughs> oh, like she was before me. She kind of inspired me too, like maybe two years before me. And she did it in order to be on the bima for her son's bar mitzvah. And so for me, I didn't have to. I was already on the Bema many times before I converted. But anyway, this friend of mine who's blonde said to me, kind of like in a kind way, listen, just so you know, be ready. We're never going to be fully accepted. And she's like, I'm blonde. I already feel kind of like I don't belong, but I can kind of pass. And she's like, you'll never pass in certain environments. Do you feel that, though? That's I so don't harsh. because I live in Brooklyn. I mean, but do you think it's true or? So I have to say, when you when you were saying before about all the people who are on, along the periphery, my synagogue, which is a fairly religious place, is filled with them. I mean, we've we've had presidents of the shul who are, in fact, Jews by choice, but we've also had, so there are lots of converts there. There are also spouses who never converted, but who are there for everything. And at our shul, they wouldn't go to the bima, but you don't notice, oh, that's someone who hasn't been to the bima. What you notice is that's someone who's here every week in synagogue, that's someone who's helping to prepare the, the kiddish lunch. You, like, there are so those these, are the nonverts in your Those community. are the nonverts, but you forget who's a nonvert and who's not. And when I think of, you know, we have African-Americans who are fully Jewish, and we have people who actually look quite Jewish who are not Jewish, but who are on, you know, who are part of the community. So I don't think that, but I do believe that there's that kind of prejudice look, out there. I, I get, I get, I, I totally get the conversation and I, I get that passing is you know a real and, and very important you know uh, thing but just the notion that Jews are white honestly is so crazy That's to an Israeli, Israeli for sure That's right whole... it's like you think you're what no like what about your history suggests that you belong no you're not come on like it's just 
so insane I, to me. I have a question for you because you weren't raised in a particularly religious environment. And so you didn't, in converting, you sort of took on the trappings, but you didn't have to give anything up necessarily. Was that, do you think that made it easier for you than say your Catholic friends? Absolutely. When we took the conversion class 20 years ago, it was filled with Christians who were struggling with giving up the Christmas tree, giving up the Easter bunny, giving up all the stuff. And and I was just like, oh, my God, I feel terrible for you. I mean, that just seems so hard. And not being able to tell your family that you've done this important thing um, is very sad. But for me, I mean, I like my parents, they're one is atheist, one is agnostic. When I converted, my dad showed up at my house. He just taken the bus from Boston, fumbling in his bag. He pulls out this crumpled calendar from the JCC <laughs> in Newton where he and my mom Aww. work out and he's like and he gave it to me he's like this is so you know when your holidays are <laughs> <laughs> oh that's the sweetest thing also isn't there a way in which like the JCC Aww. gym is how people like learn about Judaism who aren't Jewish yeah my parents are like they're regulars at the JCC so your dad's a scientist. Yeah. And you were a women's rights attorney who gave it up to be a violin teacher. Right. I mean, there's basically, there's you are from the most Jewish family in the world. I mean, this is like, you're more Jewish than a lot of our listeners. Yeah. I mean, now you are, but even when you weren't, like, I know. you were. There are all these parallels, right? Like at our wedding, my dad gave this toast where he talked about the parallels between Asian or Chinese families and Jewish families, like the focus on education, the overachievement, like we're both like right. model minorities in that you, way. You'll fit right in. Yeah. Exactly. But- as Mark was saying um, earlier, the one big difference is the interrupting. In Chinese families, if you go to a dinner with multi-generational family members, the young people are quiet. And it's almost like frowned. Sorry, just, I know, I know you're, you can't even let her get through that with sentence. Kids, I literally never get to speak at all. <laughs> Controversial topics, especially around politics, are to be avoided because we have to keep the family harmony and there's this idea that the older people have the voice of authority. And as a young person, if you disagree, fine. Disagree silently to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Mark literally can't you even imagine like it. Out. Like Mark's brain is He's like making right sounds. Now. Ellie, Sarah, <laughs> Rebecca, Anna, there's a culture in yeah. which so, you actually wouldn't be allowed so to do say that So do you go back? Like now if you have dinner with your, your, your parents, is it hard? Do you have to like... Because you live in Brooklyn. I mean, it's not even a Jewish thing anymore, right? It's like a New York thing very much. Um, and do they look at your children? I'm interrupting Stephanie to ask, do they look at your children saying like, what's wrong with these no, ill-educated? My, Ill-raised. I don't even my want to parents stop interrupting. Are, my parents are like so um, open-minded. And like my mom, my dad is kind of like backward looking towards China. Like he likes to go there. And I mean, he doesn't want to move there, but he likes to go there. My mother is very forward looking. And she has almost like forgotten that she came from China. And her whole thing is like, when I die, scatter my ashes over the hills of New Hampshire. And she's like a New Englander. Um, and so my parents are completely like, I mean, whatever. It's our family. It's just our family. They're fully accepting. So something I've always wanted to know, and I've asked converts, <laughs> some of my best friends. Um, no, I've. do you get mad at Jews who sort of like take their Judaism for granted? Like people who are like, culturally Jewish or whatever or people are like whatever it doesn't matter what I do I'm Jewish and you're like I, I don't actually need to had know to, anything but you're like not only did I have to prove myself I you sort of constantly it seems like need to prove yourself to people because for whatever reason they may not consider you Jewish like does it frustrate you I mean I'm sure there are times it does but maybe I can just feel like superior <laughs> 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 because I no, know you should. I've I mean, had to right. work for this we think you're it. superior <laughs> um 
No, I mean, I just kind of feel bad for people who feel really insecure about their own Judaism. Because you're right. If you're born into it, you're born into it. End of story. No questions asked. But you realize that a lot of people carry around a lot of insecurity about what they don't know, what they don't practice, and they feel like they should. Um, no, most Jews are in pain in some way or another. And some no, it, sometimes it's a tiny little kernel of pain. Sometimes it's a little piece of sand in the shoe. Join us. Welcome but, to an Orthodox. No, but about their Judaism. I mean, sometimes it's a little kernel of sand in the shoe that just they only notice once a year. And sometimes it's an enormous boulder they're hefting all the time. But it does occur to me that having to be intentional about it, having to actually learn and think and articulate to yourself what it means that you're Jewish is a gift. I mean, a lot of Jews could stand to do that. Well, I was talking to Neil, my husband, about this last night, and he was like, you know what? I realized that because you didn't convert when we got married, we've actually been in this 20-year conversation about what it means to be Jewish. And that's been a really meaningful conversation for him because he had to articulate for me, like, why does it matter? You know, and he was never like, you have to become Jewish. But like, what, what about it? Like, why are you so happy now? And what about it mattered to you when we got married? So Yolanda, let's... Let's be honest here. Um, the, the actual decision to convert, it's because of us, right? Oh Unorthodox my God. listening. I mean, we could say it. It's, it's okay. I want to say yes, but the truth <laughs> Do not say yes. Do not say no, yes. No, but Do here's, not say no, yes. But you guys were like, first of all, I just realized that I quoted you guys in my conversion paper, which is like so meta, right? We but gave you the term ashkenormative, right? That's right, mm -hmm. which I love. But you, you guys were- You get an were, A plus from us. <laughs> I was like reading all this stuff and then my friends were like, oh, you should listen to this great podcast. And I started listening to you guys. And I'm like, oh, my preparation is done. I'm just going <laughs> to listen to the podcast every week. Which done. is frightening. Yeah. Because we definitely don't know what we're talking we about. We did not but sign up it, for that. Yeah. And so to your friend, uh, we say, Yolanda Wu. Yolanda Wu is the greatest Jew we know. Yeah. There, you have it. Yeah. Feel superior to all yeah. of us in this room and everywhere. Do you, be before we let you go, is there anything that you want people who are thinking about conversion to know? Is there anything you went through or that you learned in the experience that you wish someone had told you beforehand or that you would want to share with others who are sitting where you were sitting a couple years ago? I actually do have some advice, which is to the extent that you're offered the opportunity Embrace the ritual of conversion because I really resisted that. I'm kind of a shy person. I don't like to be the center of attention. And I was like, oh, yeah, send in the certificate. I'm done. Maybe the, the mikvah. I don't know. But my rabbi was like, you have to write a paper. You have to, you know, lead the Shema. You have to read this declaration. You know, do you want to give a Devar? I was like, no. Um, but I really loved it. Standing up in front of my community and saying, I'm becoming Jewish and sort of going through what that meant to me, and in particular going to the mikvah and having the Beit Din. I was also really scared for the Beit Din. I was like, oh my God, like what are they gonna? And of course it wasn't that at all. These are like three rabbis who totally support what you're doing. And when in your life do you have a chance to sit with three rabbis who are like focused on you and your spiritual journey and just sort of like helping you understand it and make sense of it and giving you advice. So embrace the ritual. It's really one of the best things you can go through. Were you in the room with all the blow dryers? I was. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a spot, like it's like a, or it's like a bar class with like the locker room has all these, all these blow dryers. I feel Amazing. so left out. Me too. Yolanda, we thank you so much for being on our conversion episode. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Yolanda. Just because.
because it's a special episode, just because it's the convert episode, doesn't mean we're not going to do some of the normal business, especially Mazel Tovs. Leo, do you have any Mazel Tovs this week? Do I have any Mazel Tovs I bet this you do. Week? Who do you want to send a Mazel Tov to? Who, who do you think I want to send a Mazel Tov to? The one, the only, the victorious, the triumphant, Neta Balzilai. What what a Eurovision. She is not your toy. What a night. Bringing Eurovision back to Israel. (laughs) What a glorious triumph. What a joy. What a toy. Also triumphant, Shira Talushkin, who gets my mazel tov for having finished Harvard Divinity School. It's been a long slog. Not really. She spends all of her time working on unorthodox, as far as we can tell. <laughs> but apparently she wrote She's some like, papers. Grad school, whatever. <laughs> unorthodox, the Harvard of podcasts. <laughs> anyway, mazel tov to her for getting her MDiv from Harvard. Stephanie. My mazel tov is for all the converts who maybe don't get enough recognition in our community. And I just want to say, like, thanks. Thank you for joining us and for saying that Judaism is something that's important to you and, and making us realize what it means to commit to something and to take to take pride in our in our own Judaism. So snaps for you guys. Yep. Big snaps. Can you say big snaps? Big like, snaps. Big ups. Well, it depends how big your hand. Like I have small hands, so my snaps are small. Got it. Liel and Stephanie, do you guys have any favorite converts? Like when you think of people who've converted to Judaism? I only have two. Okay. Yep. And they're the greatest. So no no need to even carry this conversation any further because I'm just going to win it right now. Ruth. Of the, the book, OG convert. Of the Megillah. Of the, the Bible. The whole Megillah. Oh my God. And Sammy Davis Jr. That's it. <laughs> That's the, the whole history of Judaism uh, book ended. Stephanie? Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. And she people think she she converted when she um, married Eddie Fisher, but she actually started the conversion process like almost a year before she married him after the death of her third husband, Michael Todd, who was also Jewish. He was? Yeah. That's that's what that's what Haaretz is saying. I'm reading it's like so some people I'm convert, reading on this day in nineteen convert when they get married, she converted when she got widowed. <laughs> Which, you know, makes perfect sense. And and you know what I also have to say like I, I do enjoy like a celebrity couple where the where someone converts mm-hmm. to Judaism. Like I always like that. Like Zoe Deschanel converted a few years ago. Um, she did. Yeah, she's, For who? she was. Her mother's Roman Catholic. Her father is Quaker, and she converted to Judaism before she married Jacob Pachenik. Jacob Bernstein, Bomb, <laughs> Goldfarb, um, and she Heimer. says my family is liberal. I was raised in the you can be whatever you want kind of way, and in the end, I was like, eh. So maybe that's not the attitude of all. <laughs> <laughs> I recently got a bit of intelligence that I think I think this is a scoop. I don't find this all over the internet, but somebody wrote to us. This was a couple weeks ago. Uh, it was the shout out to to the rabbinic supervision from the rabbi in Chicago, who, among other things, is apparently the rabbi who did the conversion of Jeff Tweedy of Wilco. That's what? like really up your alley. And apparently, right, this is like, this is serious white guy rock convert story here, right? And uh, nobody knows that Jeff Tweedy is a Jew, but no. apparently in this congregation Not in Chicago, that. where he attends with his wife and children, and she's Jewish, apparently he he was mikvahized. Apparently he got, he got the dunk. And, you know, I don't have this confirmed yet, but... We have it on pretty strong authority. Does he have like a plaid tallis, like yeah, very he grunge? He's a plaid tallis. He went in with his hacky sack. But this is really unfair to him. Like Jeff Tweedy is a serious musician. He is, he is a not, great musician. He's not some jam band poser. Wilco is insanely good. And if Jeff Tweedy is a Jew, that that is huge feather in the Jewish cap, in the cap that some of us are known to wear. We'll trade three Nobels for <laughs> Je- one Jeff Tweedy. <laughs> Meanwhile, I just want to talk about how excited I am for some people who have just opted out. Like, huge props to Larry Kudlow for realizing that he was a Catholic. Is that the Trump guy? Yeah, he's Trump's <laughs> new economic advisor. Good, good for him. 
Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave a message at 914-570-4869. We often come to you live. To book us, email producer Josh Cross at jcross, that's cross with a K, at tabletmag.com. And of course, if you choose to wear Unorthodox, you can do that by going to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodoxpodcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Follow Stephanie on Instagram at sbutnick. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross, who also edited the Convert Montage, Nathan Steiger's story, and the segment with Ben and Naomi. Our show is also produced by Shira Tolushkin. It is edited by Noah Levinson. We bid farewell to Jules Frakes, who is giving us a lot of terrific help with production. Additional work on today's episode by Abby Holtzman. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our intern is Theo Cantor. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Aviva Shira Funk who was nominated by our listener Cynthia Minsterchang. Cynthia writes that Rabbi Funk is a paragon of open-hearted, deeply intentional Judaism. Her passion for elevating people's souls through music and prayer services rooted in halakha is unmatched, and her example teaches me how to be a better mom. So says Cynthia Minsterchang. If you think your rabbi should be selected to offer rabbinic supervision, write to me at moppenheimer at tabletmag.com. We record at Argo Studios, which has just begun its own conversion classes, and we're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends. 